Hello and welcome to the Q York podcast. It's great to have you with us today and we hope that as you listen, you'll be inspired as we continue on our shared quest together. This podcast is entirely free and yet it's not cheap to put together and wouldn't be possible without the generosity of our supporters. So if you consider yourself a supporter of Q, then please head to qyork.co.uk and hit donate to show your support today because there really is no Q without you. Thank you and enjoy today's message. I want to carry on some of conversation that's part of my own journey of faith this morning, um, much of which I'm probably less secure about than I have ever been in my life, but maybe that's a good thing because you have to live in the space of faith, not just the security of belief. And uh, I, sometimes, I sometimes wish, and then on other times I don't, that, that um, you could have access to a TV program called At Home with the Chapmans. <laughs> because you would witness uh, and understand the journey that brings us to so much of what we talk about. Uh, the struggles, the trials, the conflicts, the agreements the necessity to think, the necessity to, to, to be humble, the necessity sometimes to be strong. Um, and I sometimes wish you could get all that because all you get is a little snapshot of our best efforts at conveying what is uh, not just some theoretical doctrine but an expression of our life journey. And uh, m- much as we like to flatter ourselves to the contrary, um, How we perceive deities is largely a mirror of history. Now, we like to flatter ourselves, and I know I've been been in church, not just church, but church, church. I mean, church, church, where back then you went six or seven times a week, not once for an hour on a Sunday. I mean, church, church, from five days after being born... Uh, and that, for those of you understanding, a Pentecostal environment, a very strong, outgoing, evangelical, involved Pentecostal environment. Um, and so I speak from that background and also my years in ministry to, to realize and understand, and sometimes it frightens me, how much we perceive deities through the mirror of history. So we finish up with, and I use deities not to be offensive to anybody, but because this actually goes across the board, and somehow we think that our Christian God is exempt from this model. And I, sadly, and and sometimes frightfully, as I said, I have to admit that, that, that the God who I have loved is not exempt from this model, and it makes me have to stand and say, how much of who I perceive this deity to be is a mirror of history, because it's tribal, because it's empirical, because it's separate, and it just mirrors the idea of deities. Now, what I would like to believe, and I am hoping at this phase in my life, finally, um, uh, that I've been too thick to find all the thin places, that finally we're finding some way to be more relaxed 
about, about letting the God who we wish to know and understand and appreciate not be bound within the parameters of our historic perspectives of deities, which normally are models of how we would operate and what we would do if we were in that position. So I want to talk to you for a little while this morning about experience. See, what do we make of experience? We just pass over something like that and, and, and validate or, or unvalidate a person's experience. And, and, and I want to base some of my thoughts in that because it helps me in, in the story in, in, in the Gospel of John. Uh, this story is only in John's Gospel. It's not in, in Matthew, Mark or Luke. And one thing you learn if you, if you have been a student of theology is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, by and large, are talking about the character, personality, ministry of Jesus, whereas John is talking about what it is to have a revelation of the Christ, as distinct from the historic actions, activities of Jesus, the man, the Jewish man, the man from Nazareth. Now, now, that does not diminish the importance of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but what it means is that John's coming from another angle because he wants you to catch something that goes beyond just a representation in one place at one time of one thing. And so this is, this is the little story from John chapter 5. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called... Bethesda. Now, I, I am always intrigued. I, I, I love words. I love, I love context of words. And whenever you see in writings, ancient writings like this, a reference point, it's because they're trying to draw your thinking to something. And so when, why doesn't he just say, there's a sheep, by the sheep gate, there's a pool? It says, but in Aramaic, it's called Bethesda. Why, why would he want to draw our attention to the name of the pool, which is in Jerusalem, in, in, in Judea, to the Aramaic name for the pool? Well, I'll tell you why, because you'd love to know, wouldn't you? See, Bethesda, in, 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 Bethesda means, in, in Hebrew, basically the house of mercy, or house of grace, a bit like Bethlehem, right? House of bread, Bethesda, house of mercy or house of grace. But when you translate that into Aramaic, in Aramaic it means mercy, it means shame or disgrace. So on the one hand it's a place of mercy and grace. On the other hand, it's a place of shame and disgrace. But what John's trying to point out is it's the same place. So therefore, how I experience the same place may bring to me mercy and grace, or it may impart to me shame and disgrace. I have lived in the conflict of those two things all my life in church. The shame and disgrace. You're a sinner. God tolerates you and puts up with you. He says that he loves you, but you would best understand that as like. And if you're good enough, and if you pray the right prayer and say the right words, and believe in Jesus in the right way, he will somehow give you the opportunity and the right to live with him forever. But if you don't, you won't. And so I found myself... 
being enthralled by the story of Jesus, by the, the crucifixion, by the sacrifice, by all the wonderful story and, and the love and, and, encompassed in that, but also found myself inwardly still feeling shame at my thoughts, my behaviors, my attitudes, how I really was, how I didn't measure up, and then feeling the disgrace of that, and then having to flip from that to feel the mercy of God and the grace of God, only then to find myself ashamed of who I was and what I was. And so in that same space, my experience was a conflicting. So what do we do about that experience? Let me read on a little more. Well, let, let me just... so so. So that's telling us that in every experience in life, they can be interpreted to mean things which are completely opposite to each other. And the energy generated by those experiences are setting you up for either breakdown or breakthrough. Hopefully I can be a catalyst today to shift the energy. And I make no apologies for using the term like energy because we've got so wound up with our, our mirror image of deities that anybody in church dares to talk about energy and you're immediately labeled as all kinds of things and you can't possibly believe in God because now you're talking about energy rather than God. But since when was God not an energy? And since when is energy not flow from the source of all things, which is God, and I want you to shift the energy today. So, it goes on to say, Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid. I hate the terminologies of all this, but this is what's written, so apologies if, you know, we, we're in a, an age where we don't like to use those kind of terminologies, but you get the drift, okay? I'm reading from... He'd been there for 38 years, 38. When Jesus saw him lying there, and that becomes part of the problem, when we get in these situations, we tend to lie down where we are. And he learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time. So the 38 years is only relevant in the sense it's trying to get through to you that the conflict we have in this experience can hold us in a place for a long time. And he asked him, Jesus asked this man, do you want to get well? Which seems an absolutely stupid question when somebody's been where they've been for a very long time. But it's not as stupid as it sounds. So the, the guy replied, I have no one, here's the pity party, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. In other words, do you want to get well? I can't. This is a consequence of the experience. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Now, there was a legend. You cannot find one single example of anybody to whom this actually happened, but this was the belief that somehow angels would come down and stir the waters of this pool, and if you were the first in, now there's the grace of God in history's mind, of a deity. If you were the first in, you'd be made well. Stuff you if you weren't. If you didn't perform, if you couldn't do, you weren't getting it. 
See, this, this is a, a ridiculous legend, a myth, I believe, of which you can find on research not a single scrap of evidence that anybody ever got in that water when presumably it was the wind that caused it to ripple and walked away from their hole. But all these people were gripped by an expectation rooted in a fantasy that somehow if they just stuck there long enough, if they just stayed there, if they could just get somebody to drop them in that pool, they would get well. And so they were robbing themselves of potentially a wider perspective that might have meant that most of them never spent their life there. Last verse of that. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At Once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. See, life on a mat is not what you were created for. But we're often guilty of securing our spot among the melee of life in a place where our perception sort of says we might get healed, but we never move to where we could get healed. And so we have a pity party about it, but we still keep our mat in the spot that we have secured expecting the same thing that never happens. Do you know what keeps people gambling? Not winning. Now think about that. Not winning is what keeps people gambling. Because they're always gambling in the hope that what they think is the odds will work in their favor so they keep doing it. Listen, the church has effectively used that method to get millions of pounds out of people. If you give enough, you'll receive enough and your house will be paid off. You'll be so blessed you won't know what to do with it. Now, there is some element of truth within that, but it can also be manipulative. And so we draw people to sacrifice, not because of what they get back, but they keep doing it because they haven't got anything back. And we say it's time to wake up, which is why I can't lay heavy burdens on you of expectations of sacrifice, because I know that would be wrong, but I know it would get greater support but it wouldn't be helping you. Now, there's some honesty. See, the major problem was not the man's condition, but rather his experience. His experience was the thing conditioning him into a certain way of being. Remember it said uh, uh, that he had been in that condition for a long time. You get in the con when you're in a condition, it's because you have been conditioned. And his experiences were conditioning him into a certain way of being. If that's what experiences do, dictating your direction, what are the experiences which are fueling the energy of your life? Because that's what's fueling the energy of your life, your experiences. Are they pushing you to places and things like the man on his mat by the lake or driving you to see that within which holds the power to make you free? Because that's the whole point of this story, to find that within which holds the power to make you free and it's all got to be in a shift of understanding of experience. Do you feel those experiences are setting you up for breakdown or energizing you for breakthrough? Is the energy you draw from those experiences pushing you to a perpetual performance of the survival dance that we talked about last week? 
or engaging you in the transforming union of the sacred dance. One of the things I failed to stress clearly last week, which was part of At Home with the Chapmans, is that we shrink the Trinity. Remember we talked about, honey, I shrunk the Trinity. We shrink the Trinity when we do not see ourselves as fully part of it. And I've got in a lot of trouble with people for this, but if we are, as Paul says, 164 times on Christo, in Christ, if we are his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way, if he is just the head and we are the body, then we are one in him. Therefore, we are as much a part of the Trinity as Father, Son, Spirit. And until we appreciate and realize that, we will never fully engage the power that flows from the sacred dance, the perichoresis, the intertwining all of one, moving together in oneness. So, getting you to see yourself as separate is the lifeblood of controlling religion, which dams off the flows of so much that you could be experiencing. So the whole thing is constantly separating because when you separate, you create need. And into that need steps anybody who wants to take role of power. But you see, the whole real essence of the gospel is to get rid of that separation, which is a lie. Now, we can't talk about that. I could take you all the way from Genesis through Revelation to talk about that, but that's not my subject, and I've got to be careful just because I've got this time that I don't go off on 20 rabbit trails. See, the danger of the inability to quantify the meaning of experience is expressed in the degree to which our identity becomes enmeshed within our condition. This guy by the pool, his whole identity was enmeshed in his position. So that's going to have an impact because your identity becomes enmeshed in your position. Therefore, if your position doesn't shift, your identity won't. But many of you are wanting to feel like you're a different person, identity, but not prepared to shift your position. For the man in our story, it was disabling something more than his body. If I were to quote another scripture using this man's story, I would say, I and my disability are one. If you've seen me, you've seen my disability. I and my problem are one. If you've seen me, you've seen my problem. That's not how it's supposed to be. So can he now not entertain the thought of leaving without a sensational miracle story? That's where so much of the gospel taught to me left me that I couldn't leave without a miracle story. Somebody had to touch me with magic oil or blow on me or breathe on me or bring me to the front and lay hands on me. All those things are valid points of contact, but I put my whole faith in them that in order for me to leave the place that I was, that was my disability, I would have to have one of these magic things done. That it was not within me, through experiencing that, to release what it would that would come out of me and change my whole experience and understanding. Now, there's a guy called Eckhart Tolle, and um, he's an interesting guy. I, I find him quite boring sometimes, uh, but he's kind of a spiritual teacher, philosopher, uh, 
uh, interesting guy. But Eckhart Tolle says something that I want to just talk for a couple of minutes about this morning. Eckhart Tolle says, Life will give you whatever experience is most helpful for the evolution of your consciousness. Now, there's two scary words in there for good evangelical Christians. Evolution and consciousness <laughs> will have some of you absolutely trembling right now. And, and also life. See, God did not give this guy by the pool of Bethesda a disability to teach him a lesson, okay? But life has funny ways of working and we become the victims of life. God does not make people sick. God does not put cancers on people. God does not cause miscarriages and all that kind of nonsense. But life allows some of that to happen simply because life is what life is. But there's also something interesting about life that, remember we talked about the universe. Why do we call it the universe? The uni-verse. Uni meaning soul or one. Verse. It's the uni-verse. It's one verse. There is a connectedness to all things that I was never allowed the space to embrace in the way that I was raised, which took God from here and went huge. And the, the amazing thing was the God of all things could be fit within the pages of a book this thick. Fascinating. God of all things could be fit within the pages of a book that thick. Or he could be held within the walls of a building like this. Or he could be constrained by a did pray, didn't pray. Did ask, didn't ask. And all of a sudden now, this God has become so constrained and so restricted that, that we, we have reduced the whole bigness of it and the understanding of the connectedness of all things. We are in a very special world, a very special universe, and these things live and breathe and have their being in the essence that flows from the Creator, which I think is best experienced personally through an understanding of the Christ. So there are scary words in there, but I actually think it's right. Life will give you whatever experience is most helpful for the evolution of your consciousness. Now, some of you will think, gee, thanks, life. But you see, the point was not to oppress or suppress. The point was to cause your consciousness to evolve. Now, that word evolve is not a scary word. It means to grow and develop and take into account all around and become able not just to survive but to thrive within the environment that you are in. But you see, here was the problem. All I ever heard about was conscience, not consciousness. Everything I was taught was to develop my conscience, which was all about separation, which was drawing attention to my failure, my inability, my weakness. And if I did not have this external thing happen to me, nothing could ever change. And so all the emphasis was on conscience, not consciousness. And so we let groups like would be known as New Age, we let them hijack this wonderful word and then, being the people that we were, so full of God and full of power, we, we shrunk into our hiding place and said, don't ever use the word consciousness. Don't. 
Where was the boldness to say, hang on a minute, consciousness is right there in the beginning of our story. And we were the product of a consciousness that flowed out of the Creator and into humanity so that when it says of the man that was created and it gives the analogy that he formed a man out of the dust and breathed to him, into him the breath of life, what happened? He became conscious. What did he become conscious of? His oneness with the creator who made him and his oneness with everything else that was around him. So, we're getting stuck here. I'm going to have to rush. Life will give you whatever experience is most helpful for the evolution of your consciousness. How do you know that this is the experience you need? They all said. Because it's the experience you're having at this moment. Can you possibly allow yourself to embrace that the experience that you are having at this moment is the experience you need that will be most helpful in the evolution of your consciousness to take you off your mat, away from waiting for the waters to be stirred, and to walk away in wholeness. If your primary concern is not the evolution of your consciousness, then you will experience the devolution of authority into things you'd rather it not reside. You understand the word devolution? Devolved government means you hand power to someone or something else. And that's what happens if we reject the evolution of our consciousness we experience the devolution of our authority. It gets handed to the circumstance, the situation, the thing. I've got no one to put me in the pool. I want to be, but I can't. And we've devolved our authority that can only be brought back when our consciousness begins to engage with the experience so that it brings change to us. Consciousness cannot be opened up without experience and outside of that fear and anxiety are more likely to be the driving factor than the flow that comes from faith. The problem is experience is made up from post-receptive judgments. Let me explain that. It means what we judge things to mean we interpret our experience through. So therefore may I suggest to you that most of the experience Experiences that we measure and weigh and have are based on how things made us feel. Not the degree to which they were real. And so we began to look at experience can only be expressed in the light of the feelings that we felt. You've got a big trust in your feelings then. Problem is that's the energy that then feeds either breakdown or breakthrough. That will either bind you in the status quo or release you into the flow of potential. But it's going to do one or the other. It's not the experience itself that is the problem, but where we bring the energy from to, to uh, where we bring the energy to from those post-receptive judgments. So experience is a dodgy thing. 
When we talk about experiencing God, what do we mean? I'd answer that question differently now than I would have answered it to you 20 years ago. Oh, God was there today. Well, where was every other day? You know, the presence of the Lord really came down. Well, where was the presence of the Lord when it didn't come down? And why did it suddenly come down? Oh, because we had such an amazing worship service. Okay, so you were feeling things that then made you believe the presence of God was there more than it had been previous to that because of what you were doing. You, by your post-judgments, your post-receptive judgments of what was happening were determining what the experience was. So when we talk about experiencing God, what do we mean? Is that experience real or constructed? Now, that's going to scare some of you half to death. But maybe it should. That's why Chris said some of the things she said at the beginning about the way we have chosen to go and what we choose to call things in this place because we have to ask the question, is the experience happening? Is it real or constructed? Is it only made up of feelings? See, the idea and history of what constitutes a spiritual experience is very interesting. I don't know if you, you know it, you probably don't because I didn't know it until at home with the Chapmans raised it. Spiritual experience was not a phrase that was common in the development of the journey of the first disciples and those who were responsible for the spread of this news about Jesus into the wider world. It was a phrase that emerged in the church in the 19th century. And it was a defense against the growing rationalism of Western society, the age of reason. Everything can be explained rationally, was what the age of reason said. And so, as in true to form for the church, <coughs> we had to oppose that. And so, this phrase, spiritual experience, came in. Yes, but you have to have a spiritual experience. So now we've moved from a thing is true, and if it's true, it's true, and you relate to it and you walk with it, that now if you haven't had a spiritual experience, that's the only thing that validates the reality of what it is that you're talking about. Not till the 19th century did that become a thing. And it was introduced to protect the idea of divine agency, ahead of natural process, and boy, is there a problem, and could we spend a lot of time here. What I mean by divine agency is God is in control, God is supreme, God rules over everything, God decides everything, God has a specific will that you must keep, and we're all under that divine agency. It was designed to protect that idea of divine agency ahead of natural process, ahead of the confidence that says we were made in his likeness and in image, we are loved unconditionally, we are accepted, we belong, and the mystery of the ages is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It was steering us away from that. And it left us with a distorted idea of what experience is and means. The fear was that rational thinking would undermine the willingness of people to accept the teaching of the church and therefore undermine the authoritative role of the church in people's lives. We didn't want them free. 
The church has a long and checkered history of reacting questionably to anything perceived as a threat to its position and a challenge to its projected definitions of God and anything to do with him. This has impoverished us more than it has enriched us. I was told that faith bypasses your intellect, which meant don't think about this stuff, right? But you see, rationality and reason are good. Thinking and conversation and debate. And you see, what we didn't understand, we were so busy trying to protect our little turf and our little God that we didn't appreciate this wider conversation about the divine has been going on since the beginning of time. And people have contributed a line and a verse and a word and sometimes things we wouldn't agree with, but they were all from the same root. Maybe if we've been a little more gracious, a little more forgiving, a little more loving, a little more understanding, a little more loving of enemies, maybe if we'd been more peacemakers than offence takers, we might have gone a lot further in this journey and the world might be a better place. See, that, that, that lie was, you know, bypasses intellect and that's how you quantify true spiritual experience. In other words, there's no explanation for this. That was again an attempt to shift agency. There's a difference between bypassing your intellect and going beyond your understanding. See, I don't believe any of this bypasses the intellect. We can think, we can converse, but what some of it does, you have to understand, it goes beyond the understanding. And that's where faith steps in. To say there is a mystery in all of this, but it's a wonderful mystery about which we can feel totally and absolutely secure. So, I've taken quite a bit of time, so I'm going to try and get through this reasonably quickly. In our story, the man was bound by beliefs formulated from within his experience. Can you see that? And he was desperately in need of a catalyst to shift his thinking. His narrow dualistic thinking was telling him, if you can get in the waters at the right time, you'll be whole. If you don't, you stay stick. Right? That's the right and wrong thinking. No other alternative. If you get in, you'll be okay. If you don't, you won't. That's part of the problem that was formed by his experience that was distorted. It's the classic, I want it. I want, but I can't. I want to be free, but I can't. I want to change, but I can't. It's the dualist thing. This is the situation here. So it's interesting that there's no mention in the story of an impartation of healing. None. Just a sequence of events flowing from a question. The question may seem simple, but it cuts to the very core of this person's problem. Do you want to get well? There's no, hi, I'm Jesus. I'm going to heal you. He says, hey, do you want to get well? See, he's trying to shift something as a catalyst from the inside. Because if he shifts it from the inside and changes that attitude to the experience, then the person is going to be empowered within themselves to do something they never thought was possible that is empowered by the Christ within them, but the power is within them coming from them. Now the agency has shifted from God to them. There's an agency within them to make this difference. This is where honesty encountered through Jesus being a catalyst in the situation 
began to shift the energy away from hope in a hopeless fantasy to, to a present reality. So quickly, what is a catalyst? A catalyst is a substance that increases the rate of a chemical reaction without itself undergoing any permanent chemical change. In other words, it gets dropped in the middle and it changes what happens around it. It's a person or thing that precipitates an event. Can you see here? Jesus, by and large, in his earthly ministry, was a catalyst. That was the purpose to come into a situation where the other elements would react in such a way that they would be transformed so that the whole thing together would move forward into what it was that was always intentioned, which was the restoration of all things. A catalyst in any situation will produce a reaction for the redirection of the energy within. There's that scary word again, energy. There was doubtless an energy shift that was taking place in that moment that empowered the mind to movement. Something shifting in this guy. What caused that to be recognized? Well, the evolution of the man's consciousness beyond the bounds and restrictions that his perception of his experience had placed in his mind. That's what caused it to be recognized. Let me say that again. The evolution of the man's consciousness beyond the bounds and restrictions that his perception of his experience had placed in his mind. And because of it, he was about to create a new experience by the redirection of his energy within the same circumstance into a different understanding. This is all happening within the same circumstance. It, it's, the, it's the grace, disgrace to grace. It's the shame to mercy. It's happening within the same circumstance. And this is what John's story is telling us about. The empowerment within. When the catalyst begins to shift in us, the understanding of our experience so that the energy within begins to flow in a different direction. So how was he cured? He was cured by his response to a catalytic encounter that changed the direction of his energy, expressed in his willingness to accept the instruction, pick up your mat and walk. It suddenly dawned on him that actually what was within him Triggered by that catalyst of Jesus was an empowerment that there was an energy to pick up his mat and walk. Now actually this story is less a story, because if you understand how John writes, it's less a story about how people get physically healed and more a story about how when the Christ Spirit touches people, transformation takes place. Just like the wedding at Cana in Galilee in John chapter 4 when water was changed into wine. Was it to say to everybody, listen, when you run out of wine, guys, here's what you do. You get some water pots, you fill them with water, and you, and you go and serve them to whoever's house leading the house. Was that the point of that? No, the point was the transformation from the catalyst that makes the experience become a different manifestation. It's gone water to wine. This is about a catalyst of an experience of you realizing you can pick up your mat and you can walk. Why? Because Jesus laid his hands on you? Because you got anointed with oil at the church? No, because your consciousness has emerged within that experience that is now telling you that what is within you that is connected with everything that is outside you can allow you to walk into things and places you never imagined possible 
possible, but you still want to stay waiting for somehow the wind to blow on the top of a pond. The question is, do I hold the catalyst for change within me through the Christ presence within? Do I need Jesus personally to walk in this room today? Do I need to sing Jesus into this room? Do we need to do emotional songs to change the atmosphere? See, I've lived through all of that. Or is it an absolute reality that the catalyst for change is within me, Christ in you, the hope of glory, that when I recognize the catalyst is within me, it begins to transform my understanding of my experience to the point where it may not be changed in a moment, but I can make the choice to say, right, I'm picking up my mat, which means I'm leaving this place. I don't have to stay here. I don't need to wait for the moving of any waters. Everything I need is here right now, and it's within me. And if I'll just somehow have the faith to begin to move on that, something will take place. If you know what it says in the story, I'll finish with this. Jesus says, get up, pick up your mat, this is the catalyst, and walk. And at once the man was cured. Why was he cured? Because he heard those words and picked up his mat and walked. That's why he was cured. And so, in uh, a home with the Chapmans, one of the things we talk about is the difference between principle and practice. I'm very much a person who responds well to principle. I'm happy with principle and to let that stew. Others are more, are more comfortable with practice, which is give me the five steps to do. Well, here's the deal. I'm not very good at that. But you can ask. Don't ask me. Ask somebody like Chris or Jenny who's good at saying, I think these are the steps that are necessary. If you need steps, but for all of you, if you can catch the principle, the principle becomes an energy within you that will begin to work. It's like, it's like planting a little nuclear bomb within you. It begins to ferment and it begins to move. And if you let that principle come in and say, do you know what? I believe that and I receive that and I believe the Christ energy is within me so that if I will respond to this differently to my experience, so now I'm going to create a new experience which is not on my mat next to the pond that has ripples on it but it's actually getting up and walking away and walking out into life with the fullness of a new experience it's there for you it's there for me John's trying to bring that in and hopefully this morning I might have been a little bit of a catalyst to trigger something in you that says do you know what maybe I can get up and pick up my mat and walk, and I'm not going to say anymore, I want, but I can't. I'm going to say I have, and I can. Lord, just let all that we've said today, I pray, sink into every spirit and every heart, so that we render that place by the pool, in vain hope, waiting for wind to blow on it, to create some ripples that then we don't have anybody to help us in it, that we walk away from that place and leave it totally redundant, that we have no pool of Bethesda anymore because we all left because we caught the catalyst that changed the essence of our experience that you have been trying to use to bring us to a new place. Help us to receive that and walk in it in Jesus' name. Hope that's been helpful.
and uh, be blessed. Thanks for listening to another Q York podcast. If you've been inspired by what you've heard today, then why not email us at info at qyork.co.uk and let us know who you are and where you're listening from. We love that you're listening to us and we'd love to hear from you too. Did you know you can also watch all of the talks from Q on our YouTube channel? Just go to youtube.com forward slash QChurchYork. We look forward to having you with us again soon. Until then, enjoy the quest.